Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Hey everyone, welcome to another Wednesday Tej Talks episode. On today's show, we're talking about land. Land, land, land. Uh, something that hasn't really been spoken about much on the show so far. So Tom Hoskin is going to take us through how to find land, how he finds land, the different bits of, I guess, legislation or paperwork or stuff from the council that you should read beforehand before jumping in, but also just showing us that really anyone can do land with the right kind of training, education, books, podcasts, hint, hint, um, and knowledge and experience you know anyone can do land so don't be put off by it or think it's really far out of reach uh, if you haven't left a pod uh, a review for the podcast please do uh also want to share some stats with you so from september the 3rd to july the 2nd when i'm recording this we've had 87,065 un- listens in the last 30 days it's been 19,000 um and this has been from i think the country count has gone past 72 it was, it was i think it's like 90 right now which is awesome so hello my global listeners remember if you need a good insurance or mortgage broker or you want to be introduced to some great sources in wales then just drop me an email ted at bricks and more.co oh i also have a ted talk spreadsheet for uh, buy to lets if you want that as well drop me an email tom hoskin welcome to the ted talks podcast hey buddy how's it going I am very well, and I'm quite excited to get you on because we're talking about land and also your story as well. And I think not many people, I think maybe one or two have come on and spoken about land, and one of them was Lloyd, who you work with. Um, And I know that you also know Tom Henderson, who was also on the show. So before we get into the land and the content you're going to deliver to people, which is, you know, how to find it, how to add value, um, and how, you know, you can do it. You don't need to be an expert or have 10 years in property to do it. Before we get to that, can you tell people sort of like what your background is and then I guess transition that into how you discovered property? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean, first things first, I'd just like to give yourself a a big shout out. Um, Just kind of a a big appreciation for what you've kind of been doing. Um, I'm sure that a lot of people have been enjoying listening to you. I've definitely been following you guys for you kind of since you started it's been really interesting hearing every single person's journey along the way thank you very much (laughs) no worries now a little bit of context about myself so for me i started um i guess this journey started when i went to university um went to nottingham training and did business marketing and business marketing for me i thought was quite an open-ended thing and so it kind of gave me a lot of fallback positions a lot of opportunities of when i then kind of decided to go down the career path i was quite surprised that when i started uni i'm sure that a lot of people are on this chat have kind of gone to uni as well and um the, the kind of the sheer cost of it but then equally i was surprised that i was told that first you didn't even count and I mean, like when you're paying £9,000 for university alone, then three or four grand for accommodation plus expenses and everything else, you're looking at about £14,000 a year in, um, in finances just for kind of the first year not to count. Now, I met a lot of people at uni and um, asking them kind of what they wanted to do and their ambitions and everything else. And a lot of them kind of just said, oh, Tom, you know, I'm here for the, the, the student lifestyle. And it just seemed absolutely crazy to me that people were <laughs> kind of paying £14,000 a year, probably coming out with like 40, 50 grand worth of debt for this student lifestyle. And I just wanted more and I wanted to, to kind of grow while at my time. I mean, like first year of uni, again, loads of free time, kind of nothing to do. So I was like, well, how can I... Um, make most use of my time. So I actually came across the Entrepreneurship Society and from there they basically had practical people that came in that run businesses in the Nottingham area, talked about their journeys and how they kind of grew and then they kind of run a, like a, a Dragon's Den kind of scheme and from there you had to kind of write out a business plan and a, a type of business that you wanted to start and then they basically gave you funding to, um, to start a business and I think about 20, 30 people went for it 
I ended up being one of the, the three winners and there I was, I was given a, a sum of money to start a business for three months. And I tell you, I learned more in that three months of starting business than I did pretty much the whole time at university. I was really interested in e-commerce and so I started up a, a, a clothing company on Shopify and you know you had to learn about branding you had to learn about kind of design uh, operation sales marketing all sorts of stuff and i really really enjoyed that and the, the practical learnings from that was phenomenal a post you know learning that mr smith in 1947 said that red <laughs> red set was the best product it's just absolutely crazy and um and on that journey i actually met tom henderson so tom and i sat next to each other at this entrepreneurship society both quite ambitious people both quite um you know wanting to make the best use of our time there and and were keen to learn so me and him were, were really close and we're still kind of good friends now and um and yeah we kind of stayed in contact throughout our time at uni and then it got to our second year and um and i was chatting to him and he was like oh, i'm gonna i'm gonna drop out i'm gonna drop out i want to do property i'm gonna drop out and i was just saying you know you're absolutely crazy man start university get your degree under your belt and then you have a fallback position should anything kind of go wrong and anything else. And he was kind of like, no, screw this. Property is what I want to go into. I'm really interested in it. I have a huge passion for it, so I'm going to do it. So all credit to him. I mean, like he, he dropped out of uni and went and, did, um, and went and did property. And then I just kind of, again, stayed in contact with him and, and followed his journey. And when he when kind of two years later, when I graduated, he was already absolutely flying you know and it's kind of been it was kind of really incredible to kind of see his journey and so i thought you know i'm i'm, I'm missing a trick here i need to i need to get into property hmm. and, and then so at that moment obviously you kind of you come out of university you just spent x amount of time and money on a degree you know most people most people probably say I want to do property, but let me get the security let me get a comfortable job let me get some experience etc etc I mean, did you read anything or meet anyone that made, apart from Tom, that made you think, you know what, I'm just going to do it? Um, well, actually, when I came out of university, I did go down the, the typical job route. I think convention tells you, you go to school, you work hard, you get your GCSEs, you work hard, you get your A-levels, you work hard, you go to university, and then you get a degree, you get a great job, you know, and then your life's set and, and happy days. And actually, you kind of graduate, and I know so many graduates that were kind of struggling to get a job, and um, and I was able to get a, a grad scheme job, and so you kind of feel um, grateful for kind of getting this opportunity when a lot of other people um, didn't get them. But then actually, when I was when I was working, I I, I didn't really enjoy it. I make every employee obviously wants their pound of flesh, and um, and you kind of end up. Being consumed by it, and it's not really the path that I wanted to go down. And so, I went and worked in marketing, and they kind of just said to me, "Oh, Tom, you're young, you can do social media." And so there I was, just kind of scheduling social media posts, working with different brands, doing that kind of social side of it. And I mean, like, I didn't really need to go that <laughs> to university to do social, and like I could have done that kind of from 14, 15. I, I grew up with social media, so it was um, not really the best use of my time, and I kind of felt like I was undervalued. And so property was what I wanted to step into and it probably took me about a year and a half to two years of learning to actually step into property and that's because I wanted to find the right strategy for me and equally I wanted to find the, the right people to learn from as well so I kind of read all sorts of books over that two years in terms of uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad, Where the Wolf, E-Myth um, and then Lloyd Girardi's property development book as well and then I started attending the PPNs and the pin events and I'm like I was probably the, the youngest in the room by about 10 to 15 years and a lot of my friends were saying what are you doing Tom you know come down the pub why are you going to this property event what you know you don't have you're just a recent graduate you haven't got any money but what are you doing and um and so I had to kind of push them aside and say no this is what I want to do I've, I've got to I've got to learn I've got to stay focused so yeah, I spent a long time looking at different mentors and learning about rent to rent and SA and HMOs and development and all sorts of things. It's all about trying to find the right thing for you because I think a lot of people go to different events and kind of get that um, shiny penny syndrome where they do a bit of this and a little bit of that and they end up kind of um, either diversifying too much or they just get too distracted. And so I thought, well, I'll learn about everything, find something that suits my personality, and then I'm just going to go balls to wall and just focus on that section. And so that was kind of 
um, my journey into getting into property and and find the right people to learn from because I think a lot of people struggle with finding the right mentor as well I think I struggled especially every time you go on a different blog or a different website or something you then hit up with all these Facebook ads hey you can become a property millionaire in two weeks and and, and all this sort of stuff and that really kind of frustrated me because I'm sure that there's a lot of people that get really excited by property and step into that and then they kind of pay to go on these opportunities and they don't really get the value from it because they haven't educated themselves beforehand. And so it was important for me to find the right people to learn from and that's how I kind of came across um, Andy and Lloyd because there's a lot of people out there that obviously say, you know, property is fantastic and become a millionaire and, and all these sorts of things. But actually, they don't, they don't talk about the hard work behind it, the time it takes, and you know, and also the negatives. Right, you're starting a business. You're not, um, you know, you're not kind of getting a lottery card in a sense. You are running a business, and if you treat it like a business, some things are going to be hard, and some things are going to, you know, are going to go well. But it's the times that are tough that will shape you and shape your character, and it's by stepping through them which will then allow you to become a success. And, and I really liked Andy and Lloyd's kind of mantra on that where, you know, they'll teach you about property development, but they'll put their hands on and say, look, it's tough, but we will be here to help you. And, um, and you know, should anything go wrong, we've kind of got your back. And so they're the type of people that I wanted to learn from that would that, that were basically just honest and, and said it how it is. And, and, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting about the strategy piece because it's something that... You know, like you said, it is it's difficult and it's time consuming and you can chase various different strategies. And I think and I don't know if you'll agree or, or how you did it. But what I say to people is if you start with the end, which is your why. So firstly, your why being your actual meaningful. I want to travel. I want to open up a dog sanctuary or whatever it is. Then start with your sort of like I guess you're like your new your monetary why. So I need. 20 grand a month once you have those two you can then work backwards within like say oh, i want to do it within a time frame and work out okay i love my job i don't need rent to rent because i, I don't need cash flow tomorrow i need it in a few months you know i i have years before i even want to quit my job so maybe i should do buy to let's keep it safe or you know i don't want rent to rent so i don't want to so i think you know people listening start with the two whys and work it backwards so if you want 10 grand a month is that 10 hmos or is that 25 buy to lets is it 10 rent to rents and as you come back from that you'll slowly unravel your desire and your and who you are and realize what you want to do but like i did rent to rent for like a month nearly had one then i was like actually i don't want this (laughs) and it's only because i reflected i realized i don't need or want it so was your kind of process similar or how did you define what you wanted in, in your strategy i think yeah the uh like i said i, I looked at the the range of strategies and i think cash flow and things are obviously important but it's about understanding your personality as well you've obviously got to have a why in there but then you've also got to be able to play to your strengths i mean like my personality i'm quite an extrovert person but equally i'm quite analytical and I'm like a rent to rent just didn't really suit my personality as I I didn't really want to run like a, a hospitality management type of business. Um, and that's the same reason why SA just didn't really interest me that much either. Um, it just didn't really fit my skill set or, or my personality type. It's not really what I was looking for. So I actually started focusing on the deal packaging. So again, with my knowledge in marketing and sales and that kind of focus, I thought, right, well, I can build a brand. Um, I can try and find opportunities. I can then, uh, being an extra, I can then have conversations with investors, sell, sell um, opportunities on and kind of look to uh, um, expand my knowledge and expand my kind of cash flow and everything else. Mm. That sort of way. Yeah. So then... So you were doing deal sourcing or deal deal packaging, and then you and me both entered a competition, which was the White Box Change My Life competition. And oh, you, did you enter it as well? I did. I was in the top, I don't know, 14, and there was that oh, awesome. day, but I couldn't make it because I was ill. Like I drove up halfway, and I was in the car, and I was like, I cannot move, so I had to go back home. Um, <laughs> so, so that you know changed your life by the sounds of it. Um, I know 163 people applied, and you were the one. You were the chosen one. Um, I don't know the percentage on that, but I'm going to guess what it's very, you had a very, um, you were very good to win it and you must have stood out to them. Right. So 
Tell me what happened. So you won that competition. Then how did that shift you into what you're doing now? Yeah, sure. So I guess um, as a bit of context for people. So this Change My Life competition was uh, Annie and Lloyd from Whitebox were going to give £20,000 worth of training. So they're going to allow me to go on their property developer secret course. Then I was able to then go out to Bali. Um, and then I went on their land and planning workshop as well. And then along that side, alongside that was kind of the, this mentorship program, which worked out to around twenty thousand pounds. And um, I saw one hundred sixty-three people applied for. Uh, you know, I think on Facebook there's about two hundred likes and loads of comments and stuff. And I was thinking, you know, how am I going to stand out? What is going on here? And um, again, there I was, no experience as such. Uh, relatively new to property, not really much money. How am I going to stand out from all these people that I'm sure were more experienced than me, had more money than me, and everything else? And so I thought, you know what, I'll do I'll do a video because you had to, um, like you filled it out as well. It was like a business plan style where you had to write down who you were, what you wanted to achieve, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, well, I'm sure if convention tells you to fill out a form like that, it's just like writing a CV. So I was like, well, why don't I do a video and I can showcase my personality and stand out that way? And it turned out that it was just me and one other guy out of 163 people did that. And so again, it comes down to my, my marketing and my, my sales focus of just trying to stand out and trying to be different. And I knew that I wouldn't be able to win it in terms of skill set and in terms of um, you know affluence and everything else. So I tried to challenge it and, and go down a different route, which ended up working really well for me so um so I was actually um, on holiday when I, I went down to the interview process and um, I was trying to run around trying to find some Wi-Fi fire signal and um, my girlfriend was saying you know you're crazy what are you doing kind of just wait till next week and I was like you know you don't understand this is a really <laughs> important thing you know you go chill out on the sunbed and I'll be back in a bit so ended up having the interview and yeah it went really really well and um it was nice to kind of actually meet them and, and, and kind of get to know them. So I'd only known them, I'd only even kind of met them once at a PPN event and um, only kind of known them for about a month and a half uh, around that time after reading the book as well. So kind of had that interview and then I found out that I actually won the Sunday and um, on, on the, while well, I was in the airport on the way back and I thought, right, I'm going to go for this. I'm going to, um, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to fly out to Bali and I'm going to make the most of this. I mean, like at the time, didn't have a mortgage, didn't have kids or anything like that. So I thought, if I don't take the risk now, and if I don't kind of take that leap, um, then when will I? And and so yeah, I kind of I came back to work on the Monday, and um, it was quite an awkward conversation actually because my, my boss kind of called me and said, "Ah, oh, Tom, how's your holiday? How are things going?" And uh, I said, "Yeah, yeah, really well." And he goes, "Tom, you, you've done a fantastic job over the last kind of year. Um, I'd like to promote you to business development manager." <laughs> And uh, by that point, I actually had my notice in my blazer pocket. So uh, you can you can imagine how that kind of conversation went well. And, and um, yeah, he just kind of looked at me like I was a bit crazy that, um, you know, I was just flying out to Bali with basically a group of strangers to learn about property <laughs> development. So, um, but yeah, no, I was, I was fully committed and I thought, you know what, no one wins by playing safe. It's kind of now or never. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I took that jump and didn't look back. That's awesome. And I think, you know what, it's, that moment where you're like, oh, I'm getting a pay rise and a promotion. And then you're maybe, you know, there's a second of like looking at your pocket thinking, do I actually want to resign or do I like them? You know, kind of the life is. So it's kind of it's good that you just, you know, got out and said, I'm done. Like, you know, because it is easy to just fall into the trap and promotion and you get upset and then the next person comes and then you're, you're 50 and then you're just yeah you're stuck right so good on you for doing that and then so Lloyd and Andy focus a lot on I guess development as opposed to like sort of buy to lets or HMOs kind of more building from land now land is something that for I think a lot of people who are let's say brand new in property or even those who have a couple of buy to lets it can seem like something that's kind of out of reach but it's also something that seems to interest everyone. You know, a lot of people I speak to are always like, yeah, we've done the bytheless, done the HMOs, now we want to do land or commercial conversions or something bigger. It's always like that, that top tier of your, I guess, baptism by fire of property. So, you know, for you, transitioning from deal sourcing, which is, you can make a lot of money from it, don't get me wrong, but compared to land is, is a different ball game. So, how did you transition 
into land was it purely because of the training or yeah definitely i mean like land wasn't really on my agenda to be honest and then andy and lloyd said look we run this uh, developer secrets course we have people that want to get into property development we we have a mastermind of around 100 people they're always all looking for land so why don't you find land to help them and then help us and we can kind of take fees that way as well so it was quite like a natural progression and so we kind of built purple box from that really and the whole focus was to source land for the masterminders and and now it's kind of growing from there hmm. and then so when it comes to so land is well I guess sometimes land is on right move but I guess generally speaking there's probably a lot more kind of d to v and it's kind of like a, well, I guess it is another business in itself, right? So, like, I'm trying to sort of break it down now. What sort of things um, have you been doing? So how did you kind of, you're like, okay, cool, I need to source land. What was your, I guess, step-by-step from going, right, I'm a land sourcer to actually, hi, everyone, here's some land you can buy off me? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I definitely got a kickstart, obviously, working with Andy and Lloyd. And um, they were able to kind of teach me about how to source and how to kind of price up land and how to basically speak to um, vendors about their land and everything else. So I then went and attended a couple of meetings with Lloyd. We kind of met with uh, kind of Wonderland Bars from Homes England and um, Taylor Wimpy and Bailways, so kind of the, the larger house builders. And the, the view of that was if we can kind of understand how the big boys do it, then we can kind of apply it to, um, to a smaller uh, development cycle as well. So you were meeting them, as in they, they gave you their time so you could learn from them? Uh, essentially, we just said, um, you know, we're, we're developers within this area. We're always looking for opportunities that are basically too small for them. I'm like, Bellway and Taylor Wimpy don't really touch anything that's below kind of 60 units. And so we were like, well, if you find any opportunities smaller than that, feel free to pass them our way. And, and you know, we're happy to pay kind of referral fees and things like that. And then we then went and kind of met with the head of planning and the head of regeneration at a lot of the councils within our area, so like Northamptonshire, um, Wellingborough. And again, we kind of had to understand their process and how they work. At the end of the day, the uh, councils are basically what I call the gatekeepers. They're the ones that make the decision if something's going to get granted or not. And so to understand how they operate and their own kind of internal structures would really kind of help me. And then we just kind of sat down and, and read loads of council documentation. Now, loads, uh, if you read the council documentation, that is the best learning you can possibly do. So there's things called the local plan. And um, that basically outlines the whole history of the council, what their agenda is, what their plan for the future is, and equally areas in which they want to see developed. And then they basically go and break that down into, they talk about a five-year housing land supply. So they talk about how many houses they, they want to see built in the next kind of five, 10, 15 years. And then they actually talk about areas in which they want to see that development take place as well. So the council actually do a lot of the hard work for you. Um, but it's about kind of having that knowledge and having that information and knowing where to look. And um, obviously, if you're stepping into development, you think, you know, how do, how do I start? How, where do I find this information? And, um, and yeah, the information is out there, but you just gotta, gotta know where to look. And I mean, like, I don't know if you've ever been on a council website, but, but most of them <laughs> are, are absolutely awful. And a lot of the time you just click on it and go, you know what, I'm not even going to bother <laughs> click off. So, um, I can see why a lot of people get frustrated and, and don't start on that. Yeah. Council websites are just, the only thing they make easy is paying them for council tax. That's like a huge yeah. sign on the front page. Everything else is bloody impossible. Um, so you learned that you had these meetings because of the network that you kind of associated with. Yeah. You had a bit of learning from them. And then I know, I think sort of before we were talking about the government stance on development. So, so you're sort of working with councils at this level, but do you speak to the government about things or do you more just use their resources to understand things um so yeah you can't really talk about the government uh, about these sorts of things because it's all done by the local authorities but if you read any information at the minute we'll kind of know that the, the government as a whole and the uk as a whole are, are struggling like we're really falling behind on our on our housing supply the government have actually set for around three hundred thousand houses to be built every year 
and um, and we're kind of nowhere near hitting that sort of target. And that's basically divvied up to, to each individual council to then develop to to then hit that try to try and hit that three hundred thousand target. And um, we're we're so far behind that it's actually quite scary. And that's basically what's kind of pu- pushing up, or, or in one sense, one of the reasons why house prices are kind of what they are at the minute. And um, so yeah, the way the way I've kind of looked at it now is when I first started, it was all kind of oh yeah, well, let's go into property development, make some money, and then kind of go from there. And um, actually, learning about property and housing supply and all these sorts of things has really really interested me. It's something that I'm really passionate about, and um, it's something that I kind of view of doing for the next kind of 30, 40 years. And I kind of realised that if the private sector are so far behind, then what about um, you know the affordable living section as well. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, like, uh, people probably notice that council houses, people aren't building council houses anymore. You know, it's, it's it's not really a thing, and people are falling behind on that. And so housing associations are starting to take up that that mantle and, and trying to carry that on. But again, housing associations are, are pretty much quite um, reactive in a sense um, they'll kind of get opportunities brought to them and then they'll kind of think oh yeah we could do this or we could do that and you know there's red tape and all, all sorts of things and so I've been having a couple of conversations with housing associations and and being a small more dynamic more agile company we're able to be far more proactive and find opportunities and then speak to housing associations and look and just kind of say you know we've got this parcel of land would you be interested? Let's try and partner up. And, and that's something that I'm now doing. So there's a few, what I really like about the land side is instead of just looking at a bit of land and thinking, oh, you know, we can build 10 houses on here, for instance, it's how can we maximize the value? So we're doing stuff with housing associations to kind of uh, assist them. But now we're also looking at different ways of maximizing value through, um, you know, student accommodation, care homes, assisted living. So again, we're now kind of looking at an aging population in the UK. And obviously with an aging population comes greater care homes, greater assisted living, things like that. So we're now kind of looking to, to diversify and look to, to learn more about that section as well and um, equally park home so that's uh, again an, another kind of interesting area um, and opportunities which if you're just looking at conventional residential development you wouldn't have learned or understood any of that market but I think by understanding all those different again type of strategies that come with land you're then able to find opportunities that, that best um, fit you and your approach yeah absolutely you know what you said about the the kind of affordable housing is interesting because i i invest in wales and i think if if my figures are correct i think there's sixty six thousand um households on a waiting list to mm. like be housed in affordable housing and then yeah i think they built i think in in like the 70s and 80s they were building eight thousand nine thousand but then since 2000 they've built an annual average of 15 a year mm. and it's like what um and then to add to that interestingly enough i um went to an event and we had this we had this i would call her a whistleblower from housing association and i'm trying to get her on the podcast controversial here but <laughs> she was also saying that housing associations are actually just idiots they're not really housing people affordably they're putting the rents up so much that actually it basically becomes the private rented sector and the amount mm-hmm. of um it's not called profit for them technically it's called something like i don't know leftover or reserves yeah, every surplus, year. Yeah. yeah is so much that you think how does that make any sense so it's an interesting one around housing associations and do they actually help people but we won't talk about that now but just for people listening something to maybe google and conspiracy theory about <laughs> um <laughs> no, it's, it's really interesting unfortunately that's not uncommon i mean we're, we've been looking at for instance i'm helping someone in surrey at the minute and again obviously surrey values are you know incredible as everyone knows but again, with those kind of values, people can't afford to live there. There is no affordable housing and and they're so far behind. But then if you look at the amount of people waiting to go on the affordable housing register, it's just, you know, there's there's a huge market there and somebody needs to help. Mm, 100%. I wonder who it's going to be, a taxpayer probably. Um, so, so I'm sitting here on my computer and I'm ready to find some land. What do I do? So firstly, I would say go on Rightmove Commercial uh, or Zoopla. So basically, 
right move of up their prices. And so a lot of the commercial agents have kind of got their back up and they're now moving over to Zoopla. So always look on both um, tools firstly. And it will just basically help you understand the market and help you understand pricing as well. So anything on Rightmove, probably similar to, to property as well, is everything's way overpriced and, um, and none of the, the, the numbers stack. But a good kind of learning tool is it's finding sites with plan permission and learning how to run those numbers. And then that will help you when you find kind of off-market direct vendor things. So again, it's just a learning process and, and, and walking before you can, can run in a sense. And um and so, yeah, I'd always suggest kind of finding sites and running the numbers that way first. But then equally, it's about trust numbers. So we come across a lot of people that say, oh, you know, I've been on right move. And with this site, for instance, because of the build cost and everything else, I'm making minus 5% margin. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, that, that, that can't be right. That can't be right. Why are they pricing something where I'll be getting minus 5% margin? And I'm saying, well, you know, put yourself in the commercial agent's point of view. They're, they get paid on commission, so the more they can sell it for, then and the more they can get their client, then happy days. They don't really care about the back end. And so, you know, you've got to have the confidence, to, similar to what you, you've been doing in Wales, you've got to have the confidence to approach these agents and say, look, how can you justify this price? Because I'm, I'm pricing at X, you're pricing at Y. Can we figure out what's going on? Maybe potentially see if we can meet in the middle. And um, but it's about kind of building that confidence because, again, when you're dealing with land, you could be dealing with potentially million, millions uh, opposed just to talking to, to hundreds of thousands, you know. So it's a bit, bit different cat of fish than that. So if you get the, the wrong land deal, then, um, you know, it can kind of stump you quite quite heavily. So it's all about kind of running the numbers and, and protecting yourself. That, But with that, obviously, comes the, the knowledge and um, the experience that you need to get. Mm. And it's, it's funny because a lot of the land I see in Wales, even if it was given to you for free, you would still lose money on building on it. So yeah. it's like, hmm, this just does not work. Um, And I, I know I put a discussion on like a group and I think it works maybe for builders, maybe for those who just want to build something because it's cool. I don't know, because, yeah, so much land there. I've, I've worked out like, okay, I need to buy this for negative 40 grand they need to pay me <laughs> to buy the land of them for this to even make a tiny bit of profit so you know for people listening i'm not a land expert but i know there's plenty of areas where it just doesn't work like it, it just mathematically is like impossible um for developers like us anyway so that's right move that's zoopla now what about tools like there's land insight and there's one that begins with n am i right Nimbus. Nimbus, that's it. And so all these kind of tools, would you recommend that someone buys them from the get-go and uses them? Uh, no, I'd first recommend that they, they do the right move, as I said, and then read the local plan and understand that sort of process. But then, yes, I would suggest getting Land Insight or Nimbus. Land Insight, um, I would argue, is probably better, but... You know, you get what you pay for. It's far more expensive and it's really helped us kind of ramp things up. I've done quite a few videos on how I use Land Insight and how I do my sourcing and things. And a lot of people realize that they're only kind of using 20% of, of its full potential. And um, the amount of time that it saves, it basically pulls through kind of policy maps and planning permissions and everything else. So opposed to having to go through all these council websites, it's just basically a, a data scraping tool that uses Google Maps as an overlay and um, and helps you find opportunity or development opportunities within the area. So it's definitely a good tool. And we're now getting VAs to to help grow and scale that business. So um We've got a couple of licenses and, and they're now kind of finding opportunity, opportunities using Land Insight. They're then saving the sites and sending letters out to get direct to vendor. And then I would then basically come in and have those meetings because the problem of being a one-man band is when you're trying to source opportunities and, and everything else, it's you kind of become your own bottleneck. And so to get around that is we're now getting VAs and also we have a staff member in the office as well. And we're now kind of growing and scaling that business to um, to kind of get to the next level as such. Mm. And I think, you know, that's one of the areas where, I don't know, maybe, maybe a lot of people would think that actually, well, you couldn't outsource that because, you know, you need your particular brain and training to find it. But if you do videos, if you prepare a guide, if you train anyone or these VAs, for example, to do what you're doing 
I, I guess, you know, without um, sort of minimizing what the work that you're doing in your knowledge, it can be broken down into a recipe, right? A kind of list of instructions. So if anyone listening who's like, oh, I can't outsource this, can't outsource this, you know, maybe you can because land is not necessarily easy to understand. You know, I think teaching a VA how to find a rundown house on Rightmove is, is fairly straightforward, but using land insight, getting trained up and actually then sending letters out is, I mean, that'll save you so much time. Like, you know, why not do that for anyone kind of listening? So with land, um, I understand that like option agreements and promotion agreements are quite normal. Whereas, you know, a homeowner wouldn't have a clue what they are. Landowners are like, okay, cool. So could you maybe break down what they both are and how you have structured some in the past or how you would structure them? Yeah, sure. So we, we've got a couple of sites currently under promotion agreements and also in legals as well. And that basically outlines um, where kind of purple box as ourselves we've now become a commercial agent and a land promoter and what a land promoter does is they work alongside uh, a landowner usually farmers with kind of large parcels of land and helps it get pushed in for development so when you're working with a site let's say 10 acres for instance it's, it's a huge site and working on bellways numbers they usually develop about 15 to 18 units um, per acre so you know you're looking at about 150 plus units here and so to to do that you need to approach the council and basically it stays so you go through something called the call for sites so this will be um, set by the local parish councils and they'll talk about areas in which they want to see developed why they want to see developed and you basically need to put an argument forward for why there needs to be 150 houses in in this particular area so we basically do all all of that legwork and then we get it pushed through um, something called the shala so it's the strategic housing land availability assessment so that's kind of again the the next step of what the local council have allocated for development and then we'd get the the planning permission on it so again we'd then go through do all the feasibility do all the um, uh, surveys and everything else to then get planning permission on the site and then we act as a a back-end agent in a sense where we would then take it to attend the process and we would sell it on behalf of the landowner and uh, we'd take it to kind of a lot of the big boys some of the um, SME developers that can kind of handle that unit amount and then basically by delivering that competition and and getting the correct unit mix and doing all the market research in terms of what um, is most profitable within the area by working on that price per square foot and things then we're able to really maximize the value of that land and the the value to a landowner so we basically do it as a a completely hands-off experience for them they kind of trust us that we're going to be able to deliver this value and then we kind of get a slice of the pie for delivering that value so people kind of operate usually between a a 70 30 profit share split or or a 20 80 profit share split and that kind of comes down to um basically what what you want to get out of it and the amount of work that's going to go into it as well so if there's a site already in the in the schla for instance they just need to get planning on it you could potentially take a less um a profit share because they've done quite a bit of the work already or if you had to take it throughout the whole process and the whole cycle um then you because of this obviously the time investment and things and you could look to uh, get more more money out of it basically so i mean some of these things can take years i mean for instance there's a bit of land that we're looking at the minute and um the, the council have already put it in their schlar, but they said that they want to see development take place in 10 years' time. So <laughs> you, can, you can imagine, so I mean, you know what the council are like, they'll basically have a naught a to five year section of sites which they want to see developed, then they'll have a five to 10 year, then a 10 to 15 year, and um, it's all about where they're hitting their, their housing supply. So we'll find areas that are basically falling far behind their housing supply. And, and then kind of target those. So if I take Bedfordshire, for instance, they're doing really well at the minute. If anything, they're actually oversaturated. They, I was reading a report the other day that basically says that they're a thousand houses ahead. And like, I don't really know many, many councils that are doing that. And, um, and so we know 
that we just aren't going to touch Bedfordshire for a while because you know there's just so much competition that's and new build developments that are going on in that area it's um it's oversaturating so we're going to avoid it but it's only by doing that macro analysis and understanding these and reading this council documentation that we're able to um kind of know to avoid the area but then northamptonshire for instance which is just you know 45 minutes up the road they're about 1200 houses behind so as soon as the council's behind then you can put an argument forward for kind of pushing things through the schla sooner because you're like well you're 1200 houses behind you need these houses we've got this land we're ready to to go but you're kind of holding us up and and then you can kind of put forward that argument so that's where kind of um, town planners and all those kind of consultants come in to help you push the argument forwards. Mm. And when it comes to, so what you kind of spoke about before was like planning gain or planning uplift, right? Where you get an option, you then say to the landowner, we're going to get planning for you, going to sell it on and we're going to split the difference, right? Okay, so how, and again, I think this is a question I know that I have had before about land. You found some land, and it's within the sort of the local plan you're you're quite you know okay yeah you know what the council wants to build here it's in a good place it has all you know whatever you need what are the chances of them saying no on some dumb reason like they like to do or with land is it a case that they're under such pressure to build they're more likely going to say yes to be honest that's quite an open question it's um Again, it varies from council to council. Every some councils are obviously pro-development, some are quite anti-development. If we take um, the majority of Surrey, for instance, uh, a lot of developers have been struggling within the area just because people are trying to hold on to their to their green belt, even though they they're, they're so far behind the housing supply. So there's kind of large arguments going on there, and um, I know people have kind of been going to taking the council to court, basically saying, you know, you're you're far behind your housing supply we've got this land we're pushing it through but you're holding us back and and things can kind of go up quite through the hierarchy that way it depends on on how many units you're wanting to build and and i mean for instance there's a site near us and uh, kind of a live case study is they've put it um, in their local plan they want to see it redeveloped someone's put plan permission on that site and then it's been rejected um for you know it can be rejected for a whole host of reasons like overdevelopment or, or things like that and um and so it, it comes down to uh, different strategies again with planning as well so a lot of the stuff that we look for is kind of policy compliance so you know you look a bit of land and the council will say okay on a pre-app for instance they'll say right we want to see 15 houses here now we'd probably go for the 15 houses or maybe push it a little bit more just kind of push our luck but then there are other people that will say okay if we want to see 15 houses here right well i'm going to stick 40 there and lo and behold they get rejected and so it's all about being smart with it and equally it comes down to greed you know um for us we'd much rather get planning permission and get started on something than try and push it try and push it i know someone that's been arguing with the council for five years over a section of land that they want to, to they basically want to try and squeeze every penny out of it as, as they possibly can and um but I mean, like in five years' time, you could be work, work on a, a range of other different bits of land. So it depends on on what you kind of focus on, really. Mm. And so when you have land without planning, of course, it's worth less than it is with planning. How do you work out, like, you know, I guess per acre or whatever measurement, how much it's worth? I know this obviously varies from deal to deal, but mm. as an example, perhaps, how do you work out what it, it's worth? as is which i guess is the sort of list price or your offer price to what it could be worth with planning yeah sure so uh, again it comes down to different skill sets so taylor wimpy and homes england and people that have huge funds and can basically land bank they will look to buy farmland unconditionally and they can kind of buy that about 20 to to 30 thousand pounds per acre obviously depending on area and agricultural land is basically graded from one to five. So one means that it's uh, used for harvesting vegetables or it's kind of got a, a, a strong prime use, basically. And so you're going to struggle to um, get rid of that use class and, and get development on there because, you know, you're, you're losing a local asset in a sense. Or there'd be other sites that are kind of just open grassland, for instance, which you could argue you can get planning on. And that's what's graded five. So 
it's kind of graded between 20 to 30,000 pounds an acre on, on average on that. But then when they get planning permission, again, speaking to some of the larger house builders, they'll pay anywhere between one and four million per acre. Uh-huh. Again, depending on area, depending on unit mix and, and unit density Did you just and everything say, else. It, so it could go from 20 grand an acre. Yeah. You could get some planning, fill in some forms, argue with some people, hate the council. Uh, I'm making it sound very simple. Wait a couple of years <laughs> for them to get their act together, get planning permission, and then have an uplift of £980,000. Yeah, you can see why I'm working in this industry now. <laughs> <laughs> so, but why... And you know, this is a question of lack of knowledge. So, for example, I guess, is the aim for most people, including big house builders to buy land without planning because it's way cheaper or mm. or is there a i mean well there must be but what kind of people would buy land with planning and realize that they've paid a huge uplift for planning that makes sense mm. yeah yeah no absolutely so i mean that's obviously best case scenario but it comes down to cash flow and and the amount of projects they have to on the go at any one time you know if we take larger house bills for instance they've all got shareholders and investors and boards that they all have to be accountable to and so they have targets to hit a certain amount of units a year and you know they're still making a significant amount of money by just doing the development side so if we kind of take it through a development life cycle you'll buy it best case scenario is you'll buy land unconditional you'll then kind of sit on it for 10 years or whatever to get planning permission you'll then get that planning uplift you'll then develop it out you then get that development uplift and then you'll then either rent it or sell it on the back end and that way you're making a margin on every single section a lot of the time a lot of people will say I want to get into development, they'll find sites with paying and then kind of complain that they're not getting as much margin. Well, obviously, if you're the landowner, you're going to squeeze every single penny out of that bit of land as, as you possibly could. So that's where the, the maximum amount of margin is. But people do buy land with planning permission. And that's because, you know, they've they've either got to build or they're... Um, they've got, like I said, housing targets to hit or all these sorts of things. And a lot of the time, they're already making a lot of money. They just could potentially be making more money, so. Because, mm. like, when I see land with planning, I'm, I always look at it and think, if I just got that without planning, I would have saved myself 200 grand on some of these things. And I think, yeah, you know, the ideal, but I guess, you know, you and me are in a position where we haven't got, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds backing us and boards and, and all that kind of stuff where we could just say, oh, you know what, let's just buy a one million pound acre that was worth 20, for example, because we just have to do it because of corporate pressure. So I think that goes back to what you said in the beginning, which is like understanding, which I don't yet, understanding the market that you're in and understanding the motivations and how things work. Because, you know, if you told someone who wasn't even in property that you could get planning and you'd add 980 grand's worth of value, they'd be shocked. They wouldn't believe you, right? But for you, it's like, yeah, that's everyday sort of knowledge. Um, Because you know this stuff and you're working in it so i think once once you have that knowledge and understanding these things you know for people listening and for myself as well just become kind of normal um so we're speaking about land a bit but i know um that are you working on a hundred unit care home at the moment yep yeah yeah so yeah, we, uh, we're, we're currently working on a, a range of different things. We've kind of got 12 acres, which we're actively marketing at the minute. We've got 25 acres, um, up, up north that we're, we've got in legals as well. And then we've got another 10 acre site. We've got 24 unit site. We've got a hundred unit care home. Um, I was in Essex just the other day negotiating on 40 units and it's, it's crazy, you know, looking back to, I'm mean, like, I started this. The change of my life scheme was back in September, October. So about eight months ago now and kind of my journey since then has just been an absolute whirlwind. And I'm now kind of negotiating on sites worth, you know, upwards of kind of four or five million sort of thing and it's it's crazy because uh, again I, I went and met with uh, one of the one of our contacts one of the, the major builders the other day and he was saying Tom when I first met you back in kind of November time to to 
you know, talking to you now about reading the Schlar and looking at Brownfield Register and and looking at the different promotion agreements and everything else is like you're just you're a completely different person and you've done a fantastic job by kind of jumping in the deep end and, and doing this with Andy and Lloyd in a sense because if you were to go to one of the big boys or, or anything else, you'd basically just still be making the, the tease in a sense. So um so yeah, absolutely no regrets to, to what I've kind of done and yeah, really, really looking forward to the future. Wow. And, you know, like you said, land stuff can take years and years and years. I mean, compared to say a buy to let or HMO that can take months uh, or less, like with land, obviously it takes years, uh, potentially, or, you know, maybe a bit less, but it definitely takes longer than other strategies. Like, so for people who are new in, let, let's say they're new in property they have zero properties right and they do mm-hmm. want to get into land would you recommend that they first you know maybe get some hmos or buy to lets just to give them cash flow or do some flips before or at the same time doing land because of the time it takes yeah definitely i think if i look to back where i was kind of nine months ago when I started out, I'd, I'd be wanting, again, there's so much information out there. You think, you know, where do I start? What do I do? And so, you know, look into HMOs or look into vitalettes and things. And, and again, just educate yourself and figure out what you want to do. Now, you can be successful in land relatively quickly. So we've basically broken ours down into a short, medium, long-term strategy. So a lot of the stuff we've been talking about is kind of the, the high-level, longer-term stuff as I wanted to give people a flavor of what you can potentially do in the 10-year the range. But actually, you can find sites and you can either, <clears throat> let's say, find a site with plan permission and develop that out. You can kind of get like a 20% margin on that. Yeah, okay, it might take you a year f- um, for the development to take place. But then you could pay yourself a project management fee within that, which would then cash flow you. You could then look to do um, smaller parcels of land to get planning on. I mean, like a, a lot of our masterminds at the minute are working on kind of back garden plots and, and land infill. And this will basically be, I'm sure you'll see it in Wales, where it's just a building, 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 plot of land, building, building, building. So that's that's basically what we'd call infill. And you could probably fit, let's say, three, four, five units on there. And we'd get... Um, uh, we'd look to get outline planning on that or, or a PIP, so permission in principle. And you can get planning permission, those sorts of things, in relatively quick succession in kind of four um, four months, give or take. So there are there are ways in which you can get started far faster. And I'm like, I haven't really stepped into the HMO market just because um, I, I saw everyone doing it in reality to be honest there's loads of people kind of talking about hmos and and getting into hmos and i always felt again from my marketing and sales background is if everyone's doing one thing convention will always tell me to do something different and that's why i've decided to go down the niche of land because not many people are doing it and um and that's what kind of scares me about hmos and like everyone's always talking about um saturation and i know nyla matt so they were actually out in bali and and i met them there and that was really interesting to listen to their um, podcast the other day. And, um, but yeah, in terms of HMOs, again, people talk about uh, saturation, but then also competition. So, you know, you might have the best HMO on the street, but then a year later, someone might put, um, get a new HMO and that might even be better than your one. So then you then regenerate and, and invest those profits back into your HMO to make it even better. But then obviously, if you're reinvesting those profits, then you're not making as much margin and things like that. So there's loads of things in, in, in HMOs that kind of... Uh, you know, they didn't really, again, suit my personality type. I think they're fantastic for cash flow, but then it comes down to competition within your area. And again, like I said, in a macro sense, understanding your area, but with land, like I said, because it's more niche and there are kind of shorter term gains in that land, it's, it's something that I'm, you know, really enjoying. And that's maybe a, a bit of a, a biased outlook for myself, but <laughs> that's, um, yeah, the, our focus moving forward, really. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and, you know, you mentioned competition and it reminded me, I wanted to ask, so, you know, there's, there's, there's a few people, you know, like you, who have the same tools as you, the same ability to read the Schlar, to read Brownfield Register, to do, to do, you know, to essentially do exactly what you're doing, right? Because of course, you know, there's plenty of people who are successful in land. Mm-hmm. Now, I know there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of land around, there's a lot of greenery. You know, as soon as you leave London, yeah, there's loads of greenery. <laughs> but um, like, how 
like how do you find the competition in that like do you find that all right land insight you found a bit of land you sent a letter out i mean surely that landowner would have got 10 others like how are they picking you and why are they picking you and do you get a lot of them saying no we've already mm. got an option with someone else or we prefer someone else or uh yeah i mean again it comes down to area for instance I'm, i did a little bit of sourcing in surrey and again because the values in surrey are so good uh, a lot of the major players are, are in there and it's it's quite challenging to kind of step into that market but then if again if you look into other areas and it's about again we talked about finding your gold mine area in by well why not find your gold mine area when it comes to land as well so we kind of been focusing on trying to find different areas and and different response rates. I mean, in our area, we're getting about a ten percent response rate from the letters that we send out, which is is pretty decent. But again, we're now kind of doing different strategies. So we're doing a lot more kind of um, guerrilla marketing, and we're doing more social media marketing and things like that to try and uh, build our brand and, and get awareness of of people out there. Because at the end of the day, you want people coming to you opposed to you going to them. Um, and again, it comes down to my skill set of branding and trying to trying to get the name out there mm, okay that's fair enough and you know one thing we haven't kind of touched on is mindset now i know you know we all know it's it's the foundation of who we are and, and kind of our successes you know working on yourself is the biggest you know return on investment you're going to have like what kind of i guess struggles or challenges have you had um and maybe how do they relate to mindset or how has your mindset maybe stopped you having certain challenges Sure. So mindset is probably the most important thing or one of the most important things, especially work ethic as well. I'm like nothing can be just turning up and, and putting in that consistency. Uh, with land, it, as we said earlier, it is challenging. You do have to kiss a lot of frogs and that's either because landowners just want too much money for it or we have come across landowners that are interested. But for instance, again, a, a live example is it was owned by uh, parents. They passed away. They then passed it down to their children. Their children are about kind of 40, 50 now and then their grandchildren as well. So there's now kind of eight owners of this parcel of land. So trying to get them all in the same room together and to agree on the same thing is quite a time consuming and quite quite a long process um and so it can kind of become quite disheartening where you know you put a lot of time into trying to find land negotiating land and things and then you either get gazumped or, or whatever it falls out of bed in the last minute but then again it kind of comes back to that consistency and, and just turning up and if you have your why and as i said earlier about my why is about um, affordable housing and, and just trying to basically bring more housing to the to the market it's kind of when i first started i mean i put my hands up and say yeah i want to get into development i want to get into property because i want to make money and i'm sure <laughs> there's a lot of people with that will, will put their hands up and say the exact same thing but actually it's, it's now gone gone beyond that and um and i think having that why and having that mindset will definitely help you when times get tough and it's been interesting doing the the property training side because surrounding yourself and meeting all, all those like-minded people that you can kind of bounce off again when things get tough you can kind of like for instance me, me and tom are, are good friends been good friends for years and as and when times get tough you can kind of bounce ideas off each other and same with andy lloyd if something falls out of bed or whatever we can all just sit around have a bit of a laugh have a drink and, and then go right back on it tomorrow sort of thing so I think mindset is really, really key. And it's like anything in business, you know, if you don't have the right mindset, and you don't consistently and passionately turn up to, to what you want to do and have a big why, then then what's the point? You know, you just you're not going to deliver it. And I'm, I'm a keen advocate of, of treating things like a business. If you treat it like a business, then you'll be successful like it's a business. If you treat it like a hobby, then you're only going to earn a hobby's wage. Yeah, oh, I like that. I like that. Very good. Awesome. So, um just to i guess round off the podcast what is your or what are your goals for the future these could be personal career fitness anything personal goals for the future um i want to grow purple box i want purple box to be one of the the go-to land promoters across the uk uh, i want to be managing a hundred acres of land by the end of the year um so yeah, if you're looking at between four, one and four million per acre, that's um, not not a bad not a bad little sum. Um, 
and then yeah just, just focus on myself i want to go traveling so the the view is to grow perfbox to an extent and then have it systemized with the vas and everything to then be able to go traveling and i mean i could there's there's no escape i can work on landing site from mauritius i'm happy to do that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Awesome. Okay, cool. And and for everyone listening, Tom is giving away a free 30-minute sort of consultation, coaching, mentoring, helping call. So from anything we've talked about today, if you want someone to like school you on land insight, obviously check out his videos, but otherwise he can help you with that, how to find, how to assess your di- anything. Um all you have to do is follow Tedge Talks on Facebook, Instagram, leave a review on the Facebook page. Drop me a message and I'll enter you into the competition. You have uh, 10 days from today to enter and then I'll pick a winner. Um, so, Tom, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I think people are taking are going to take some value from this um, and it's going to get everyone excited for land. My pleasure. It's been uh, yeah, really great coming on. I'm really passionate about helping other people. I mean, when I look at back at myself nine months ago, I wouldn't have been here without other people's help. So really, really keen to help others on their journey. So if anybody wants to reach out to me, you can catch me on Facebook or LinkedIn, uh, Tom Hoskin. And yeah, let's go from there. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.